1: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Welcome, Lucy. Welcome back, I should say. Welcome back. We've had a slight sabbatical, haven't we, over
2: summer. How has yours been? It's been good, thank you. Quite a lot of British weather, shall we say um but that's all fine and I did some reading and listen to this Alex I did some reading when I didn't have to well I know that that shouldn't
1: be a thing but I'll get the special podcast medal (laughs) tray out and according to what you tell me now I'll select the size of the medal
2: what have you been reading I think you should be going for the big medal because you remember in now I can't remember which of the summer roundups maybe two weeks ago we were talking about the Booker is it the long list must have been the long list yes and we said oh let's try and read at least one of the books that we haven't read we may have said we'd read all of them let's let's just skim over yeah that. we did we did but okay. we didn't set an right. end point to that did we good i actually did that i actually did read one of the books i read in ascension by martin mckinnis is it martin mckinnis i definitely read it i'm pretty sure that's his name it's very good it's really good Right give us a, a sort of insta review of it a
1: little summary
2: <laughs> well it's sort of I'm not going to say it's not really science fiction it's sort of speculative as it were it involves the depths of the ocean and also I don't want to ruin it well it goes it goes down into the ocean and up into the air put it that way so it's quite sort of thoughtful and theoretical it's got a lot of really interesting ideas in it and but in case that makes it sound dry it isn't it's also got a really strong human story that you're kind of very involved in it's quite intense the main character is quite intense and very moving and really interesting and brilliant I think so I would really recommend it. Are you picking it for the shortlist then? No to be honest I was surprised it was on a tour because as we said at the time that kind of book tends to get slightly you know stuck in the kind of science fiction shelf and and doesn't really get onto prize lists very much so I'd be very surprised if it won but it's very very good so you know so not to show off but I actually did what I said I would do
1: oh good lord
2: (laughs) I'm only making a point of it because it's so unusual that's double meddling
1: (laughs) reading one of our books and doing something that you said you'd do. Well, well done, Lucy. I've been reading lots of books that, that actually haven't been on the long list. I read a brilliant book by Anne-Marie MacDonald called Fane, which is a sort of historical, and it's very, very long, very good. It's about the sort of mysterious borderlands, the, almost the sort of uncharted territory between Scotland and England. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, really good. And about all sorts of other borders, I've been reading Adam Mars-Jones, of whom more in a a little bit. I've been reading Zadie Smith's new book, The Fraud. I read that. What a
2: fun book. Isn't it? Isn't it good? And other high-level critical terms. But... (laughs) It's i'm sure so, we'll talk more about it's it later so enjoyable isn't yeah. it yeah yeah it really is it's one of the ones and we probably will talk about it later it's probably be one of the big things won't it of the autumn but it's one of those books that after about three pages you sort of go because ah, you just yeah. think i know this is going to be good i'm you going know, to enjoy i'm this delighted above. by this yeah Yeah, yeah. Because you immediately want to know who the narrator is, what's going on, what's going to happen, how, you know, because it's conjured up for you. Anyway, yes, yes, that is really good. It's really great.
1: We're going to be talking a lot about the big books of autumn over the coming weeks. But on this week's show, we have Adam Mars-Jones on Carrot, the third instalment of his semi-infinite novel, and Amber Massey-Blomfield on Susan Sontag's renowned production of Waiting for Godot in Sarajevo, 30 years on. But first, we're heading into the world of John Cromer, the protagonist narrator of Adam Mars Jones's series of novels. And once again, punctuation is our starting point. Adding to the first and second of Cromer's Odyssey, Pilcro and Sedilla, comes Carrot, the small mark that proofreaders and typesetters use to indicate that something is missing. In the novels, John navigates childhood and young adulthood, repeatedly overcoming the physical limitations of the arthritic condition that severely limits his mobility. Now a student at Cambridge, he's in the process of establishing an independent life. I'm delighted that Adam joins us to tell us more about Cromer's progress. We're just very delighted to have you here today because what a labour of well I don't know is it a labour of love this is the third part of what has been described as the semi-infinite project of John Cromer's life
0: I came up with that phrase however the TLS still puts trilogy on the cover of the issue that has the review of part three (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're saying absolutely not. This is no way. Oh, is It's a trilogy now.
0: A trilogy implies there that it's come to an end. It does, and doesn't it? I never it? Said trilogy, and the first editor who read it at Faber, Lee Brackstone, I made the foolish decision not to tell him in advance, oh, by the way, it's enormous and it's not finished. So he was racing through it thinking, yes, and then he found it sort of ended with a, the equivalent of a semicolon rather than full stop and was completely thrown. And had to think about it for quite a long time before he looked at it in a different light and saw it as part of something bigger and none the worse for that.
1: Well, very much the better. I mean, I absolutely love these books and I want them to go on forever. But there's been a little bit of a wait between Sedilla and now. Obviously, you've written other works of, of fiction in between, rather shorter. But tell us about what's been going on between Sir and Carrot. Am I saying Carrot correctly?
0: Carrot sounds good to me. Okay, It's hard to say. But if the books, the first two books got very favourable reviews and zero sales because in a way that I didn't understand while I was writing it, it's an incredibly unattractive subject. Seen from a distance, I would not want to read this book if I hadn't written it. And if somebody said, "Oh, you should read these enormous books about a disabled gay Hindu. They're really interesting," I think, mm, "Thanks." <laughs> so I can't be surprised that they were not commercially successful. But the messages I got from Faber were, I felt them to be undermining. I took them to be undermining because it's all about the amount of money lost. And when you mm-hmm. have little bits of conversation reported by your agent to say, "Well, they were going to, uh, we were going to put a new cover on the paperback of Sedilla, but you know. Why bother? It's only going to sell 1,500 copies. That does not make you feel like going on. I always Mm. could have, but I needed a following wind. I knew there were some readers, maybe in the high hundreds, low thousands, who wanted more, but that isn't enough to galvanise you. I I was playing with it, and it is play for me. Uh, Writing is play. It is not work, but you have to get yourself in the state of mind where you can play. So it was really the arrival in my life of Alex Bowler, the editor at Faber, who saw its potential in the present tense, who saw that the previous books might have more life to them. But he just connected with the manuscript and having that following breeze meant that an awful lot happened relatively quickly. I mean, I think in September and October of last year, I probably wrote the last 150 pages or suddenly put them together. And he was confident enough in what I was doing, to put it into production before he'd finished reading the end of it. Because I suppose by then we're reaching the 2000 page mark. If you think I don't know what I'm doing, (laughs) you, you really have missed your moment. But I mean, it was extraordinary, the feeling that this was going to happen relatively fluently when, to my mind, the barriers against it were quite strong. But maybe they were to some extent in my head. At the same time, if you imagine a parallel universe in which Wolf Hall did not win the Booker Prize, was not a bestseller, got respectful reviews. It's not certain there would be the two subsequent volumes. I mean, in that case, it was a clearly successful artistic and commercial decision. I wasn't in the same position.
1: I'm so interested to hear you talking about it with that uh, you know, edge of pragmatism. Well, that aura of pragmatism, you were just essentially saying this is a collaborative process. And if there had not been the conditions to carry on, you wouldn't have carried on. And I think from a reader's point of view, with something that is so minutely detailed, so lengthy, such a clear project, you imagine that it's always going to have a life no matter what. But it's so interesting there to talk about the contingency of it.
0: Well, my writing psychology is insecure but stable. You know, I don't see myself as being you know, on a knife edge, but I, ha- I don't have a strong identification with myself as a writer. I was not the writer in the family, which meant in a strange way that I've been able to claim writing as an activity without the prestige of the role, because that was always my older brother's in my parents' fantasy, which never was realized. But despite what you say about collaborativeness, this is an unbelievably uncollaborative process. <laughs> You know, compared to making a film or anything, the idea...
1: Oh, sure, yes, yes. It's happening in your room, mainly.
0: Yes, yeah. when I see writers who thank the 24 friends who they've shown manuscript to, i just amazed because if eight of them say slow beginning, if eight of them say mm, nothing in middle, if eight of them say failed ending, then you have no more friends because you won't be able to talk to them after that. But also, <laughs> how do you trust them on something so intimate? I know the weaknesses of my writing well enough to know that only at the last minute does it really hang together. So when I'm talking about the 150 pages that I wrote or or put together, there was already well over 500 pages that had been needed an awful lot of work or a lot of, of just adjustment before it could sing and dance. But I had been tinkering. It's just the sense that there is a God there that you can sacrifice your time to, that being the editor. You know, that it is actually a process with a possible ending makes all the difference. So, but at the same time, it was important not to force the manuscript. I think what's unusual about it is that I try not to subordinate any element to any other. You know, John is not more disabled than he is gay, not more gay than he is Hindu. Trying to keep those things in balance and trying to have a sense of movement and even micro plot, but not macro plot. In other words, there's no overarching plot, but there have to be little ripples of consequence keeping you going as a reader for 30, 40 pages or or sometimes more. I've always felt that plot is useful. I can do it in an emergency, but (laughs) it's not natural to me. But all it is is a form of necessity. And what you need is necessity. And you can get that by other means. And the physical constraints on John and the tremendous harmonious conflict between his mind and his body are enough. I don't need to have him become prime minister.
1: Yes, that makes perfect sense. And I think we will come on to those 150 pages because a lot happens in them. And there is plot And let's just say we won't immediately be looking forward to our own Christmases in the same light, perhaps. (laughs) And you may really think twice before taking an ungovernable pet to somebody else's Christmas lunch. That's all I'm saying. No spoilers. But to think about where we are at the beginning, I mean, we find John Cromer pretty much as we left him at the end of Sedilla, don't we? Which is essentially briefly homeless and in need of his. Adapted mini.
0: I think that the hardest passages of the series to write were the years of bed rest in volume one. I mean, the idea that somebody should be put to bed, as it happens, misdiagnosed rather than being given rest, which would be helpful to him physically, and told not to move. And then when he's five, along comes a tutor who's alarmed by how precocious his reading is and withholds books except for half an hour a day. To make that into some sort of chapter, some sort of, it's about 100 pages, perhaps a bit less. It has to contain boredom without being boring. And that was very difficult to get that, as I felt, right. And it was the same with the time that John spends in the mini, sleeping in the mini, cobbling together some sort of existence between a cafe and a church and the botanical garden. That was hard, again, to make that not seem Entirely negatively characterized as a bit of non-time or non-space in his life. Even Proust takes two years off between volume one and volume two. That that lazy Frenchman, <laughs> there is a break in the continuity. But I didn't feel and don't feel that there can be any break in the continuity of John, because that is the sort of fundamental principle. As you may know, this saga is based on a friend's life. He was somebody I met in the 70s. His, First name is John. His last name was started with a C. And he came back into my life in the 1990s after I reviewed train spotting for the World Service. And he was in Tamil Nadu under a tamarind tree, heard my voice, and said to his carer, I know that man. And his carer said, <laughs> Of course, you do. And so John got back in touch just to prove a point. Not because he'd missed me in his life. And I thought he was dead because I had made attempts to contact him and we'd been told he would not live much beyond 30. And he was by then in his 40s. So it is based on his life. And when I thought I wanted to write from the point of view of this disabled gay Hindu, who is also a pedantic mystic, that, believe it or not, is not the end of the story. There is an obvious way to do that. But the one thing I didn't want to do was serve him up on a plate, give disabled experience in its basic abbreviated form for to be consumed and also in a strange way if i was a better writer pilcrow would not have been written because i would have had so many more options i could have written about his life in a different way or else i would have thought no it, it's too much work and with a greater range of skills and interests i would have moved on to something else and left it be but it seemed to me that disability if you're going to write from the first person point of view disability has a decelerating effect. If you're blind or visually impaired beyond a certain point, negotiating in space is slowed way down. If you're deaf or hearing impaired beyond a certain point, social interaction is slowed way down. And if you're physically pretty much immobile, time slows down, everything slows down. And thereby with the first person, the link between physical activity And mental activity is weakened, if not broken, and you have to have an entirely different way of constructing that life from inside. I can only say that now because people are asking the question now. I had not formulated those thoughts till this week because my process, despite my reputation as somebody very intellectual and analytical, which are very useful things to have around, my process is entirely intuitive and I just see what works on the page. It's only afterwards that you think, oh, That's why that works. I didn't even know this was a long book till I started printing it up for Lee Brightstone at Faber. Because if it had been notebooks, I'd have seen, because they'd be in a stack. But computer files don't stack. So it was only as I printed out that I thought, oh, God, if I'd known it was this (laughs) long, I would have given up long ago.
1: This is a monster, and there is more of it to come. I was fascinated by what you said there about the slowing down of time, because, of, of course, time in different forms of fiction is one of the most interesting things to think about and you've written novellas when you consider the sort of time frame of a short story and how the the confines of it really dictate what can happen dictate its possibilities but thinking about what you've said there about the pedantry i'm so interested in why he is such an extraordinary pedant and of course the time thing makes a lot of sense of that doesn't it because if everything is slowed down, you have time to notice a lot of stuff and want to record it. Is that how his personality kind of came came into development?
0: Well, I mean, it is based on the friend and his personality. Mm. He was he was a tremendous pedant. One of the running fights we had was, you know, I pronounced the word F-L-A-C-C-I-D flaccid because onomatopoeia rules and that double C as flaccid is too tense. It's like, tensed muscle and he wants something flabby flaccid is right mm. and he just refused to accept that as an argument saying there is no other word in the language where double c is pronounced as double s so he would uh, you know he would tease me by saying oh i had a little accident you know he, he was. Relentless. <laughs> and his, uh, another bugbear was dissect and dissect he was saying no it's bisect and dissect it is not you know, he dissected the novel admirably. Yeah, yeah. Very important. Also, historical John was a proofreader. <laughs> <laughs> right. As a proofreader. So he was extremely attuned to all those things. And, in fact, he died last year. I'm both his literary executor and his executor. And on his death certificate, it said retired proofreader. He still set store by that. But what appeals to me in terms of the writing is that he's both a pedantic and a mystic. So he's both somebody who defends the tiniest distinction and somebody who sees everything as a continuum. And that gives me a lot of leeway. And in the way the book is constructed, even the fact that there are separate volumes, they do, I hope, have an internal coherence, but they are continuous. So they are both modular, they are both modules and part of a continuum. So the sense that there is... a despite how eccentric all the elements seem, that there is a harmony going on is important to me. And I didn't feel I could introduce the idea of the fractal, uh, the sense that as you go down into a fractal pattern, into a Mandelbrot set, all the relationships stay the same, however low down you go in magnification. That was not a conscious thought. It wasn't even part of the thinking behind the book. But to give you an idea that that John is not, historical John was not so very far from his fictional counterpart, a phrase he used was the fractal brocade. I mean, he liked the books. He had a lot of input in them. As a proofreader, he advised on what, literal pilcrow we should have for volume one he introduced me to the word pilcrow he chose the name by which he goes in uh, in the book so there's plenty of agency there that fetish word for minorities but also i bring my own stuff to it and he accepted that there were things that i invented that he forgot towards the end i'd made up and thought were his memories and equally well when i got something completely wrong i decided that i'd rather not correct it because if i'm correcting a factual error then i'm writing biography and luckily john the particular error was his granny coming to stay when family lived in bath and he said i don't know where she'd have been you know there wasn't any room she'd have had to hung you know to hang by her heels you know in the attic uh, like a vampire but then he said i like the idea that she did so he didn't want it changed he found it quite refreshing to rewrite his past so that she was there. So uh, there's been a lot of rather odd collaboration in those terms. But the fractal brocade was his phrase for the sense that there is a rich texture that looked at closely is self-similar. Every page has all the elements of the whole book. Oh, that's how how I wanted
1: That makes sense. I mean, you were talking about Hilary Mantel earlier and I was remembering one of the things that she said about writing such a long work and a long series was that every arrow you fire has to land somewhere. And on the most basic, you start with a very minute discussion of cutlery. And this is not a plot spoiler in any way, but you kind of end with cutlery. And that is, but there are, thousands of those little patterning motifs and incidents and objects.
0: I think that may be the reason there's quite a lot of Gulliver's Travels. There are a few, quite a few references to Blake and quite a few references to Gulliver's Travels. Blake, because if there is a motto of this series, it is, if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise, because it is so unlikely and it goes on becoming un- being more and more unlikely until suddenly it's inevitable. And in the same way with Gulliver's Travels, the sense, partly the disproportions of scale with Brobdingnag and Lilliput, but also the fact that Gulliver is individually too strong to be held by any of the individual strands that the Lilliputians put around him, but he's immobilized by all of them. So the sense that you can bind and contain something with lots of tiny threads rather than a single giant hawser. At the same time, my feeling about this series is almost the opposite of what Mantel was saying. To me, the whole book is an arrow in flight with no target. It isn't in the least teleological philosophical way that means you're defined by its ending. Mm. A short story pretty much has to be teleological. There are very few where you can just stop without any attempt at a conclusion, without readers making that into a sort of teleology. But what I'm trying to do is emphasize on the arrow in flight, having set up by accident as it happens, the, simply because it was something historical John told me that uh you know his learning to walk was like Zeno's paradox he had to cover half the distance to his destination then half of that and half of that and half of that which according to the specious logic of the uh, of the paradox means he never gets there but John's never getting there is his way of being and that is not unsatisfactory to me at the same time the spoon stuff turned up at the last minute what I try if I'm trying not to you know, have a sketch of how things are going on, say, oh, this moves towards that. Then it follows, I have to wait for things to bubble up. And it was only quite late on, maybe September of last year, because I remember saying to Alex, I think I have found a way of ending that ends with spoons. But I only realized that the manuscript began with spoons (laughs) at, at that point, you know, I remembered. So it isn't under my conscious control. At the same time, it's not completely uncontrolled. And what I like about the large, the huge novel is that, to my mind, it becomes the territory of both and, not either or. I think with a short novel, certain choices have to be made definitely because it's crystalline. I mean, one example would be, I remember being a bit snippy, not snippy, but just saying, mm, I'm not sure that's formally satisfactory about Flaubert's parrot, Julian Barnes' uh, book, mm. because there were moments where there was dot, dot, dot and the character, the voice of Jeffrey Braithwaite, changed the subject, which clearly indicates we're listening to the transcript of a voice. But other times it was clearly a written text. And I do this. I take both of those to extremes, particularly in this volume. There are moments where John is talking about the way Americans write fetus with just an e. And uh, you know, he's obsessed with the fact that the form with the fused OE is superior, but that other times he can say things like, I say that's rather good, I must write that down. And I mean, it's obviously a joke that he's saying, I must write that down. <laughs> yes, yes. Written. But yes. I think you can, once you've got the reader to accept not even these rules, but this web, then you can stretch it in a lot of directions. So a critic who worries about, you know, how are we getting this, these words? Is it that in some future time, John has learned how to speak into a voice transcribing bit of software on a future computer? Not important. If you're stuck in the web, then you're happy stuck in the web, you cooperative fly. Otherwise
1: <laughs> <laughs> God, that hadn't even occurred to me to think about it like that, to sit there wondering. I mean, it really it washes over me. And I don't mean in a in the sense that I ignore it, but you have to kind of surrender to the flow. I'm so glad you mentioned the fetus, et cetera. Because <laughs> I I I mean grammatically speaking, because I started writing down the little headings, the sort of section headings I suppose they're not exactly chapters and the I've thrown my lot in with the diuresis I think is one of my (laughs) favourites.
0: Well one of my favourites was you come across something that says thixotropic is not a word and then when you read the text it says thixotropic is not a word I use lightly. (laughs) There's a moment where you're sort of reassured that okay okay there's this jumble of letters I've not seen before but it's okay because it's not a word and then by the time you get there john has sort of ambushed you uh, those subheadings i think are important i one of the reviews said that is obviously an editor has been saying have mercy on your reader it was me having mercy on lee braxton between the first time he saw what he thought was the self-contained manuscript and when he understood on second reading that this was going to be an installment so i started putting them in because I do think it's a courtesy to the reader to break things up a bit. And it was a device I'd seen only in short books. It's used in uh, Vonnegut's Cat Cradle, and it's used in Martin Amos's Dead Babies. And I thought actually, a short book doesn't need that, and a long book can profit from it. But I've found, even in the last bit of copy editing of this volume, that by shifting the title, those intertitles, those headings justified to the right rather than the left, shifting them down a bit on the page, so that they either coincide or don't coincide with the break in the narrative, could amplify an effect very usefully, could give continuity or else mask a lapse of continuity. So I found them useful to me, even though they were originally meant to give some sort of handhold to the reader because a big block of text is oppressive.
1: You see, what they meant to me, I just thought they were funny. (laughs) And I, I sort of think if you wanted to do a John Cromer semi-infinite project digest. You may simply collect together all the all the headings and see what it's almost like a parlour game.
0: They're that just, was an idea. I did write them all down and send them to Alex. But publicity-wise, you know, this is already potentially a baffling enough project. Uh, I think. I mean, one of my suggestions as a sort of tagline, was to say, sure, War and Peace has the Battle of Borodino, but does it have a pub cat that eats Rolos? (laughs) There's no point in competing. You should emphasize the ways in which this is gloriously trivial, or rather that it tries to ignore the distinction between the trivial and the important on the basis that the distinction is not real. That's the other way in which I think a long novel can combine things, is it can be tragic and comic. It can be light and it can be entertaining, but to some extent, socially committed. At the same time, if my only concern was the social representation of disabled people or gay people or gay disabled Hindus, it would be a very odd way of approaching that. I like the sense of play and freedom that I feel while writing it, knowing how paradoxical that is, given John's immense confinement. But if the reader shares that, And above all, if they're entertained, because I don't think you can laugh or be amused by somebody you pity. I think that, I mean, it's a reflex of mine wanting to make people laugh, but it has its purpose, not didactically, but to try and prevent people from saying,
1: oh, poor little tyke. Absolutely. And Adam, you just completely put that in exactly the right terms. I laugh all the way through this. And sometimes I think, God, he's such a... He's so annoying, and I feel for his mum, but his mum's really annoying. My hero of the whole thing is Joy Payne, I have to say. I like to think that if I were mutated into fiction, I would be Joy Payne. I like her very much.
0: Yes, she's a a lovely character. I I did like her her very much.
1: (laughs) Adam, thank you so much. Back to the drawing board or writing desk for the next instalment of the semi-infinite project, please.
0: There's plenty of it. I mean (laughs) first book is covers 15 years, second book covers seven years, this covers six months. It was originally much longer. So there is certainly another volume within certainly within a year of, of being ready for anybody who wants it. I mean, if you're an editor, it'll take longer if you're a reader.
1: Thank you very much. Thank You will come back and tell us when, all about it when it happens. Thank you, promise. Thank you.
2: Still to come on the show, Amber Massey-Blomfield on the 30th anniversary of Susan Sontag's production of Waiting for Godot in Sarajevo.
1: And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
2: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. In our summer double issue, our lead piece reminds us of an extraordinary anniversary. It is 30 years since Susan Sontag staged a production of Waiting for Godot in the besieged city of Sarajevo. Amber Massey-Blomfield, whose book Acts of Resistance will be published next year, has written a terrific piece about this for us. And we're really delighted that she can join us today to talk about it. Amber, many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Lovely to be here. So to sort of start at the beginning, really, let's jump right in. Can we begin with why she decided to do this extraordinary thing, how she found herself in Sarajevo and, and, you know, what were the circumstances that led to her doing this?
3: Yeah, well, she first went to Sarajevo in April 93, which was a year after the siege had begun with her son, David Rafe, who was a reporter there. While she was there, she met this incredible character called Harris Parsovich, who was a young theatre director. I think he was 31 years old. He was running the MESS International Theatre Festival. And there's a great story about Harris Parsovich. When the siege in Sarajevo broke out, Sarajevo was his hometown. He was away overseas. And he just felt that he had to be in Sarajevo and he had to be with his community I suppose and so he tried desperately for a couple of weeks to get back into the city and it was just completely surrounded so he couldn't get back in so he actually ran across the um, airport runway under fire from, from snipers to get back into the city while everyone else was trying to escape and get out. So he was, you know, I think that gives you a sense of what kind of character he was. He just said to her, I would love you to come and direct a production in the city. And there, I found in her archive in LA an amazing fax that he'd sent her after she went back home from that trip in April 93. She got this amazing fax from uh, Harris Parsovich where he's calling out... Out to the artists of the world to come to Sarajevo and make mm. you know make something real in you know the most important place on earth so that's really what what took her back and she wrote that you know she really wanted to be in Sarajevo she wanted to do something useful and her sense was that directing theatre was really the only thing that she could do that would exist only for the people of Sarajevo because of course with theatre you kind of you you have to be there in person you know you have to experience Mm. the siege and she didn't want to end up you know a piece of writing for you know that would exist for people outside of the city it was about creating something for the people there and with the people there.
2: You get the sense throughout the piece that it was I think you mentioned that she says at some point, look, if I was a doctor, I'd have gone over and done that. But she, it's like that's your job, that's her job. That's what I can, that's what I can bring. So I'm doing my job. It was also what she and as you say, what
1: other artists were being asked to do. I mean, that call to arms, as it were, was you know, it was provocative too, wasn't it? It was saying, you know, don't just look at us from the outside. Come here and make something. It wasn't this sort of idea that she went and was kind of imposing herself on it. It was something that they really wanted to happen. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think
3: different people in the city would take very different perspectives on that question. I think there are critics of Sontag who do see that there was an element of self-aggrandisement in it. And, you know, perhaps there's an element of truth in that. But I think, you know, really... She had such a strong sense that, you know, a kind of moral equivocation around the role of artists and writers and what they should be doing was irresponsible and that she was a great fan of people like James Baldwin and Camus and Orwell who had gone and placed themselves on the front line and she wanted to be a writer in that tradition and she wanted to go and be a part of what was happening in Sarajevo and be on the front line and not, you know, not sort of assume this position of intellectual remove, where she could kind of coolly opine on things at a distance.
2: She wanted to place herself in the heart of things, and I think that's very admirable. Mm. This is also going on from what Alex says. You also make the point. In the piece that a lot of theatre was going on in the city already it wasn't that she graciously brought the gift of theatre to the city it was happening throughout the siege wasn't it And, and and the shows were full and things like that
3: yeah and I mean I think that's what's so fascinating about the city is that you know you have this impression of you know a life that people were leading where they were Completely under attack. You know, there were up to 3,000 shells falling on the city every day. You know, when people went out in the streets, they were at risk of, you know, being killed by sniper fire. They were queuing up for water every morning for hours and sort of living on humanitarian handouts. I mean, a really bleak existence. And yet, at the same time, this extraordinary flourishing of cultural activity, you know, and Sarajevo had long been a sort of intellectual and cultural you know capital in in that part of Europe and actually there was a real rich sort of intellectual arts going community there and why would they not want to go and participate and another brilliant Pasovic quote is that he started a film festival during the siege of which Waiting for Godot was a part and he was asked in an interview why are you starting a film festival in the middle of a siege? And he replied to this journalist saying,
1: why are they having a siege in the middle of my film festival? (laughs) (laughs) There is that that extraordinary story that you repeat about the cellist who goes and plays on the scene of a a mass shelling, a, a murdering, and plays for 22 days straight. And you also speaks so interestingly about the concept of time that obviously people were having to spend enormous amounts of time just fulfilling the basic functions of life queuing up to get water but they were also cut off normal life was suspended you have actually got to find something eventually had no idea how long it was going to go on it went on for a very long time you have to find something to hold on to don't you
3: Yes. And I mean, I think there's sort of two aspects to this, one of which is, you know, there's something very mundane about it. It's just, you know, terrifying living in a siege that went on for four years, but also quite boring, you know, and actually you needed to have entertainment and things to go out and do every day. And, you know, some of the actors that I spoke to who were involved in the production said, It was about maintaining normality. You know, that was what our our job was. That was what we did every day. And we wanted to keep going out and doing that. But then at the same time, you know, I think there's this real sense that the preservation of a cultural life was a real expression of human dignity and actually that that was a form of resistance, you know, that there was this attack on human bodies but at the same time, you couldn't take their dignity away. And as they sort of continued to make and experience art, that was just a reminder of the human life that was under attack and the richness of that human life.
2: I was going to ask about the cast and the people who worked on it, because what we remember about the story or what you hear about the story is often Based on, you know, it was Susan Sontag who went there and did it. But of course, as you say, there was a whole set of people who worked on it and the conditions that they were living and working. In. And she shared, she shared the danger, didn't she? Because as you were saying, we've been sort of mentioning this, but there were snipers kind of lined up in the mountains around. And so walking around the streets itself was an incredibly dangerous thing to do, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think, you know, there was very few places within the city that you weren't vulnerable to attack. And she was walking from... holiday inn that she was staying in to the theatre that she was performing in each day and the you know the theatre itself you know had been shelled the foyer was full of rubble you know they had to go in round the back because the front was all blocked up with rubble so it's Mm. it's this very real sense that she was in the heart of the city and as you say the cast themselves you know they were they were literally starving you know they were having to lie down in between scenes they were rehearsing to preserve their energy and she was you know, she was living at this hotel with all the journalists and they were getting given these stale bread rolls for breakfast and she was sort of smuggling them out and taking them to the cast in rehearsals. And, you know, that was one of very few things they had to eat that day. So, you know, it really is the most surreal and extraordinary image of, you know, literally making this production surrounded by shells and sniper fire
1: and, um,
3: you know, this stage in the middle of the rubble.
1: Mm. And, And what a play to choose. How did that come about? Why was it Godot that they chose to stage? I think she
3: instantly, as soon as she was asked, it came into her mind that that was the play. And, you know, I think the resonances of Waiting for Godot and the situation they found themselves in in Sarajevo were so strong. You know, this sense of, well waiting for intervention um yeah. you know, there's, you know continually in Sarajevo they were you know Clinton was saying that they were going to intervene and stop the siege and Mitterrand and various other figures you know they sort of continually hearing well you know the international forces are about to turn up and stop the siege and it just didn't happen and they were left waiting and there's all these Just the parallels of day to day life and, you know, how Estragorn and Vladimir in the play are, you know, sleeping in ditches and they've been attacked overnight by aggressors. And they're sort of trying to make ends meet with these kind of dusty vegetables. I mean, it's really the resonances are incredibly strong. And then, of course, you've got this character, Lucky, who's, you know, chained up and beaten. And the actor who played Lucky, Adamir Glamakak, said, to Susan Sontag, I'm playing the city. You know, I feel like I'm playing the city, and I think she said to him, "You know, you can't play the city." Actually, but that was some just a sense that he couldn't he couldn't shake off. So yeah, there was huge resonances.
2: And I wanted to ask about it. It's very interesting. Also, the way she did it that you mentioned in terms of just seeing it as as a piece of theatre, dramatic production, because the style was very different, wasn't it? She wanted them to be very very melodramatic and expressive. And she cast it double and gender blind and all of that, which, as you say, normally the estate of Samuel Beckett, would not (laughs) let you do that in a million years. Yeah. But they didn't get to that one.
3: Well, I I assume not, to be honest, I haven't looked into that in that much detail. But yes, it was certainly um, a production that was far more irreverent to the stage directions than would normally be allowed. You know, the Beckett estate is notoriously very strict and I think you know Beckett himself was very strict about his stage directions being followed to the letter and so on but yes Mm. I suppose you know being in a war zone I don't know how how (laughs) much they would have intervened there she was very resistant to it being taken elsewhere and I think there was some discussion of it being brought to London and she really didn't want it to be brought to London and I think she had such a strong sense that what made the production special was the circumstances of its creation and it really should only be
2: experienced in Sarajevo by the people of Sarajevo. Mm, That it was it was for them and sort of not for everybody else as it were. There's also with Godot you point out the resonances or parallels between what Beckett was going through that he refers to in the play in fact that he's going through wartime.
3: Well, I mean, that's what's so interesting, because, you know, Beckett, of course, was totally resistant to any sense of interpretation or reading of, you know, the deeper meanings or resonances of Waiting for Godot, Mm. as Sontag was in, in some senses. But, you know, Beckett had the most extraordinary experience during the Second World War when he was in Paris and he, you know, saw the occupation of Paris and was living in certain regards a life that was very, very akin to that of his characters. You know, he was very involved in the in the resistance movement in Paris, so he really understood the risks and the threat of that. And then he, you know, had to escape Paris and went on the run and went down to live in the South and really was living under quite bleak circumstances in terms of, you know being pretty impoverished and not having access to, you know, food or as much food as he would have liked and, and all that sort of stuff. So there are all these resonances between what happened in his life during the Second World War that are quite impressed upon the surface of the play. Mm.
2: And as you say, the kind of scrabbling around for vegetables and and the state of suspension of, of reality.
3: That's exactly it, yes. Waiting and not knowing when reality might resume or if this is your new reality and how long this way of living is going to go on for.
1: And also I suppose something that obviously both he and and people who went through that experience in the second world war and people in the siege of Sarajevo and that entire conflict, this feeling that your entire civilization, your life was under threat, that there were forces that wanted to see your total destruction.
3: Yes, I think so. And something about a suspicion of authority as well. And the fact that, you know, authority always remains at some remove and can't entirely be trusted. And there's something really fascinating I find about Waiting for Godot, which is it is, you know, it's a play that is oblique in its meaning. You know, it's it's not designed to be about a specific place. And yet it has resonated so much in context where people are in the most desperate circumstances and feel that they can't trust authority. You know, there's been production, you know, in New Orleans immediately after Hurricane Katrina. You know, there's been famous productions in South Africa, you know, during apartheid and productions in prison and and so on. And it's just extraordinary to me how this play, which is kind of deliberately opaque and not about something specific, has come to resonate so strongly with people in very difficult political circumstances. It's fascinating, you know, and I think the other thing that I find so fascinating about it as well is his role in the resistance when he was in Paris was taking accounts of what was happening in the city, translating them into English and editing them right down to the sort of sparsest point he possibly could and these accounts were then taken and sort of printed onto microfilm and shrunk down to the size that they could be smuggled out in a matchbox or something like that and this sense of language becoming so coded and stripped back and minimal and how that kind of appears within Waiting for Godot and and all his subsequent work I think is so interesting.
2: Mm, Yeah as well as making a very sort of strong case for why Godot it was such a kind of an opposite play to do then you also sort of talk about why the art form had to be theatre and of course you're very well placed to know all about this because you're an executive director of the theatre company Complicity. so why did it have to be theatre?
3: Yeah I mean that's I mean that's what draws me to the story so much and I suppose I'm always you know what I'm so fascinated by this aspect of theatre, which is about how much of the artistic experience of theatre derives from being in a specific place at a specific time and with a specific group of people, you know, and that's unique, really. I mean, I suppose gigs and so on have that too, but the liveness being so important. And, you know, I think, you know, exactly as I was saying before, that this sense that she wanted to make something that... You could only experience if you had basically had to walk through sniper fire to get there. You know, everyone in that room had the deepest, most profound sense of what it meant to live in those extreme circumstances. And that shaped their experience of the play. You know, she'd written so much about photography as well and this idea of forms of communication and expression that are consumed at a distance and how distancing certain forms of art can be. And, you know, theatre is the antithesis of a photograph, I suppose. It's mm. So it's immediate, you have to be there and it's gone as soon as it's over. And I think that's what really appealed to her. There's a, you know, a similarity between the situation that people found themselves in. You know, Sarajevo, in some sense, was a theatre. You know, you have this stage where the drama was playing out, surrounded mm sides you know the city actually almost looks like an amphitheater where you've got these raked hills and terraces coming down to this you know central area so yeah I mean that's totally fascinating to me basically
1: there were also photographs weren't there because she had traveled with her partner Annie Leibovitz yes was also so interested obviously in documenting what was happening did she take photographs of the production too
3: Yes, she did. She Well, she took some photographs of the company and many extraordinary photographs of the city, which I've seen, and of Susan Sontag. There's one amazing photograph of Susan Sontag sitting in the middle of the city hall and the library, which had been totally destroyed a few months before they got there. I think over two million books had been burnt and Sontag's just sitting in the, the middle of this rubble, staring into the distance. And it just for me, is a, you know, a photo that says so much about what Sontag was saying. Look, culture is being destroyed here. You know, I'm in the heart of this place where culture is being destroyed. So it's a fantastic photo. There's also many brilliant photos by a photographer called Paul Lowe. And I think the photos that appeared in the newspaper with the article are by him. And he Mm. captured some extraordinary photos of they were in the rehearsals, they only had a few candles each day to rehearse. So there's all these extraordinary photos of them kind of rehearsing and gathering around these candles and the inky darkness kind of expanding around them, which are really beautiful. Mm.
2: There's a very real vital question you come back to a couple of times, which you touched on earlier about sort of about whether it made a difference or was important. I mean, those are two different questions maybe. And you give us differing viewpoints on that and on, you know, on Suntag herself because some people, as you say, thought it was, I mean, some people were very unkind about it. Weren't they worse than unkind? They were very cruel about it and said it was just her doing a stunt and it was reprehensible and, you know.
1: I've, I found that part of, of what you reported there, Amber, really shocking actually because it seemed to be almost to express a kind of hatred of art and of the artists who would sort of almost presume to do something like this and it was really very vicious some of the criticism was
3: awful awful and misogynistic and you know there are some horrible horrible quotes which I just don't think would appear in newspapers now I mean (laughs) she in a way you know, she represented something, didn't she? You know, she was celebrity intellectual in a way I think we find very difficult to even imagine now. I don't think we've got celebrity intellectuals like that. And, you know, she represented high culture and intellectualism and all those things, you know, she was easy to attack for all of those reasons. You know, I think it's notable that, you know, I think many of those criticisms came from you know, US, UK journalists rather than the people of Sarajevo. That's not to say everyone in Sarajevo thought, oh, this is fantastic, just as everywhere else there were different opinions about it. But I certainly feel there was, you know, from many of the people I spoke to, I think there was a respect for what she did and an admiration of the willingness to sort of come and and put herself in the firing line. And, you know, I think the thing I found... You know, she was really, really committed to Sarajevo. You know, this wasn't a flash in the pan thing that she just came and did to get a few headlines. You know, she went back again and again and again, and she formed real friendships that lasted until the end of her life. You know, in her archives, there's all these faxes where she's sort of negotiating to get insulin in for a child that needs it. Or even just, you know, someone said, oh, she bought me a bottle of Chanel Number 5. And that was so fantastic because that was, you know, Mm. real... You know, slice of civilization and the outside world. And, you know, I think she was genuine. You know, I think she really was holding fast to her beliefs and what she stood for. And I hugely, hugely respect her for that.
2: Yeah, I thought it was noteworthy in the piece because you are very balanced. And you, and as I say, you give the negative viewpoints as well. But it's really noteworthy that basically the people who were there. That you've talked yeah. to and, and who've, who've said yeah and they didn't say she won the war she didn't change the course of the war she didn't change the conflict but they said it was important that she turned up as you said that they respected the fact even that there's someone who says well look I'm a soldier and I you know I think I made a real contribution to the war but it was still important what she did.
3: And I think that's what's so interesting to me and as you said I'm you know I'm in the process of researching a book and writing a book about Art and political resistance. And, you know, something that I am learning as I go along with this journey of writing it is, you know, I started off thinking, well, you know, I want art to kind of change the world and I want art to be really, really legible that you can make a work of art and then a law is changed or a war is stopped or whatever it is. But actually, the place of art within political resistance is much more nuanced than that. And it can do many, many things. And actually, the reason why those people in that room made that production of Waiting for Godot wasn't because they were thinking, oh, we'll make this production of Waiting for Godot and then Clinton will send some troops in to sort this out. They were doing it because it was a hugely sustaining thing for them. You know, it was a way of sustaining their humanity and their sense of self. And it was a way of understanding what they were living through as well and a frame to kind of look at the world and and at the same time a frame to make connections with one another and with their audiences and all of those things have an, an enriching role to play in creating an atmosphere of resistance and an atmosphere that helps you survive and fight you know and I think that was exactly the argument that she made so yes it's you know you know she didn't stage the production and then Clinton said right. You know, here we go.
2: You've convinced me. Okay, there you go. Yeah, no. <laughs> Although
3: I would say, I mean, I think certainly it, you know, refreshed an international attention to what was happening. You know, it was a great story and there was huge international press coverage of it. So, you know, it did have a purpose in kind of reaching out of the city and, you know, regenerating that kind of engagement. But I don't think that was what it was about. And I don't think
1: that's what she was professing it was about, you know. Amber, before we we let you go, I mean, this is something that you are writing about in greater detail in a book that's going to come out next year. The title is telling me that this is Acts of Resistance. This is exactly the kind of cultural engagement that you're talking about. Would you just tell us a little bit about the project?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, as you've said, I'm a theatre producer and I think, you know, three or four years ago I just started really thinking you know the world was looking pretty tough in lots of ways as it continues to be and I just had a bit of a crisis really where I was thinking well is what I'm doing with my life really important you know what is the use of kind of making theatre when there's a huge climate crisis and you know Covid and all the rest of it and I had always felt it was important but I'd never kind of really challenged that idea Um, Mm. and so this project is really about me going out and looking at you know who are the artists and the you know the artworks that have had a really important role to play in political resistance and what will that tell me about what I do. So it's been a really you know expansive period of research and I've really kind of followed my own fascinations and you know people always come along and tell me well do you know about this story yeah. <laughs> something that I haven't heard of and then I have to go off you know after that but yeah I think as I say you know I started off really wanting to find stories where I can go right that person wrote that book and that changed and I mean there certainly are some extraordinary examples of that um you know things like one day in the life of Ivan Dinosavich and the role of that in you know the sort of changes in the Soviet Union and the Monkey Wrench Gang, for example, and the huge impact that had on the climate movement in the 90s. You know, there are brilliant examples where you can very directly trace a line between an artwork and the significant political change it's made. But as I've sort of researched and I've thought about it, I'm just coming to the position that the importance of art as a form of political resistance is not necessarily, you know, I'm going to do A and B is going to change, but actually it's about how a landscape of resistance can change and how people's experience of their lives can be changed. And so, yeah, that's what I'm I'm exploring, really. So I am getting towards the end of it. It will be out next <laughs> summer.
1: <laughs> and you'll come back and talk to us about it when it's published.
3: Yeah, oh, it well, sounds fascinating.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. That would be great. We really look forward to that. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Amber. A real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. have time for this week our thanks go to adam mars jones and amber massey blomfield and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex
1: clark goodbye